This is Anshu Bahanda on Wellness Curated. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. My mission is to empower you with health and wellness so that you can then go and empower others. And we have someone who is an authority on psychedelics today. His name is Saad Shah. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Noetic, a venture capital firm that seeks to invest in emerging and early stage psychedelic-based wellness, therapeutic and pharmaceutical companies around the world. It's the largest venture capital firm in the space and he has been studying this space for 20 years now. He started with esoteric philosophies, then he went on to quantum physics, then he started exploring consciousness and he came upon psychedelics. We got so much invaluable information today. Listen to this. One of the things that psychedelics do is they have the potential of changing your past. And what I mean by that is just if you change your relationship to an event that happened in the past, you have changed your past. If that takes place, right, if that change in mindset takes place, you are actually able to change the relationship you have with that event in the past. And as such, you've changed the past. That's very important to understand in terms of therapy, what the promise of psychedelics can actually bring about. What is wellness to you? Wellness is something that is really holistic, coming together, not just of the body. We typically think of it as something that's good for our system physiologically, but it's very much more of a mind and also a spiritual component to it. So it's the coming together of those three elements in a way where what matters equally in terms of the food and the nutrition that one takes in is the mindset that one has, how one approaches um, the issues that they're facing with, your emotional intelligence, your attitude to life, and in addition to that, also just ensuring that you have you know, what it takes to kind of keep your mind at bay from all the issues that we're facing on a daily basis. So it's, it's holistic, and that's what it means to heal, is to be whole. Now, Saad, tell us, what exactly are psychedelics? Psychedelics are substances you can predominantly find a lot of history in terms of many of the botanicals but they're also synthetic substances that essentially alter the state of our mind they alter our perception and that's not necessarily a bad thing despite what we've been told but ultimately the way in which these substances interact with our serotonin dopamine and melatonin receptors and other as as a neurotransmitter they enable us to look at issues and things that we're dealing with from a very different perspective and that can be have profound implications on our mental health and our well-being that can come out of you know botanical substances such as mescaline or ayahuasca um, or psilocybin which is also known as, as as magic mushrooms but there are also synthetic components like lsd uh, that are quite well known in the ecosystem for bringing or inducing that uh, that mindset so psychedelics in itself means mind manifesting. What have psychedelics typically been used for that you know of? And tell us sort of key situations in which you've seen them help individuals. There is tons of history about the use of psychedelics going back thousands and thousands of years, right? I mean, the Rig Vedas themselves talked about the Soma. 
you have in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the first written context in Western civilization on the, on the Sumerian tablets, is a story of, of King Gilgamesh and about the thorny plant that grows underwater that provides you with eternal life. Now, Soma purported to do the same thing. So when you take a look at the hieroglyphics in, in Egypt and the carvings in Karnak and elsewhere, the blue lotus flower comes up a great deal, and that has a very strong psychedelic component to it, right? Uh, the mimosa plant, I mean, there's enough there to suggest that these substances played a very critical role amongst many cultures and civilizations in, in the past. I think what's more important is the use of psychedelics as a known substance in modern history. And if you go back into the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, there was a ton of research done. I mean, the first real research around this was done at the turn of the, the 20th century, back in 1893, 1894 by Hefter and, and synthesizing uh, mescaline. Typically, what that was used for at that point in time, there was a lot of psychiatric studies that were done, uh, especially mm -hmm. undertaken by individuals like Stan Groff to try and understand the components and the makings of the mind, how we think and how we approach issues and so on. In the 60s, it turned from being something that was more studied as a therapy to becoming known as the love drug, an instrument for, for many that were free thinkers. And mm -hmm. Timothy Leary from Harvard had a big role to play in that. And that's what derailed the process with Nixon, right. because Nixon wanted support for the war. You had all these happy people running around saying no war, more love. And that was going against the foreign policy that, that Nixon had. So he put all these substances on the schedule and abuse list, and then they were banned. Pharma companies played a big role prior to the 70s. But then when this got out into the open, into the public domain, and was a freely available, it wasn't illegal at that time. It was going against a certain paradigm, and it was going against a certain mindset that the, that the U.S. had. So they put all these substances on the schedule and abuse list. And they also managed to convince a lot of the other countries that these were bad. And technically, in order for it to be bad, they had to make a case at the time, which was not made, that these are physiologically addictive, which it is not, that they have very high toxicity levels, and we know that they have amongst the lowest toxicity levels, and that they're very harmful to you, and we know that that's not the case. So right now, there's an about turn and all of that, because research came forward in the 90s in, in a profound way, um, and has been growing ever since, that these molecules, although they're very powerful, have a profound impact on the, the, the makeup of our mood and our mind and the way that the receptors work and can actually not only just be a treatment, but actually be a cure for treatment-resistant depression, right? Treatment-resistant depression means there is no treatment for that form of depression, for major depressive disorder, for PTSD, for anxiety. And so right now, the focus in a big way is on mental health. We're not even looking yet at, at the anecdotal evidence that we have and, and, and other evidence to suggest that there are linkages to autoimmune disorders, to inflammation, to oncology, and to other areas of, of, of our wellness and well-being that have yet to be fully investigated and researched. So the implications of, of how this can be game-changing is pretty profound. The science is overwhelming. You cannot argue with that. But there are a lot of unanswered questions that have yet to, uh, you know, yet to come through. You had said something about them being mind-changing. Mm -hmm. So tell me, are they mind-altering or are they mind-enhancing? They're both. Okay, so when you take a look at the way that the mind functions, it's a spectrum, 
right? Even look at mental health illnesses, right? It's a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you've got, um, you know, very serious cases like treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD. On the other hand, you've got more cognitive impairment, right? Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, ADHD, ADD. What we know for a fact is that these molecules are incredibly efficacious in the way that they interact with the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, which is what is, you know, brings about the hallucinations, but also uh, is an important component in our mood. We also know that these molecules cause neurogenesis, right? New cells to be born. We know that they are, play a vital role with neuroplasticity. So forming more neural networks. Those areas are very important when it comes to, you know, cognitive impairment and mind enhancing. On the other end of the spectrum, we know that they also play a very efficacious role in bringing depression down and uh, essentially allowing you to face your problem without having a lot of angst. The big problem is that we all face is that we all have some trauma or issue that we're dealing with and we're in a small room and there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room and that doesn't allow you to move around. But if you reduce the size of that 800 pound gorilla into the size of uh, mini me, now that problem is you can look at it, you can go around it, you can deal with it and you go, that's not an issue. I can deal with that. And that's what psychedelics allow you to do. So I think that the spectrum is quite wide, but they are both mind enhancing. They can be, and they can be mind-altering for good reasons and for good purposes. Given what you've just said, that there can be mind-altering and mind-enhancing, and the fact that you've said that they're not addictive and not toxic and can't harm you, what is your view on them being used recreationally? These are very powerful molecules. There are certain ailments that we know now, for example, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, where you have to be very, very careful in taking these molecules. The dosage matters. And everybody's an individual, very distinct individuals, and their body makeup is very distinct. So uh, giving two grams of psilocybin to one individual may be a hero's dose, whereas somebody else may only require half a gram, and that's a hero's dose for them. These are the questions that we still have yet to answer, which is what is the right dosage for the right individual? We also know now, I'm sure, that because of our genetic profile and makeup, there's some of us that are predisposed to certain psychedelics and will react better to that as opposed to others. So there's a real element of personalization that takes place, and there is nothing more personalized in medicine that I know of than psychedelics. Because you can give 30,000 people the exact same dosage of the exact same molecule at the exact same time, and they'll have 30,000 different experiences. Making these recreationally available without the public having the right knowledge and information about how to approach psychedelics, what to do to prepare to get there, the therapy that they need before and the after. The integration is probably the most important aspect of this. It's not just take a pill and it'll solve all your problems, but it, it's, it's highlighting the problem, but you still have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. For that reason, without there being enough public information, it becomes dangerous to say, yeah, let's make it available to everybody and let, let everybody do what they want without that knowledge, right? It depends on what meds you're taking, what antidepressants you're on, what your issues and situation is, your genetic profile and makeup, your setting, your intentions. Is there a way for you to integrate all this? All of that matters. I'm so glad you said that because the one thing that I say a lot to the younger generation, because they ask questions about this, is this stuff is so powerful. You don't meddle with this. This is, you don't realize 
how powerful it is. And you've just put it very beautifully, sort of explained why we shouldn't meddle with it. So thank you for that. But there's also a lot of talk about bad trips, yeah. which have been unpleasant for people. So what is your view on that? And why does that happen? There's some of us that will say that a bad trip is a good trip. And I want to be very careful when I say that in particular about that. What psychedelics are doing, mind manifesting, they are going into the subconscious where we tuck away a lot of things and they're highlighting things for us, things that we don't want to bring up, we don't want to think about, we don't want to go back to um, that, you know, are tucked away because they were traumatic or whatnot. And they're bringing it to the forefront and saying, listen, again, if you approach this the right way, you need to deal with this. And if you don't deal with it the right way, it's going to bother you for the rest of your life and it's going to cause more and more issues, right? And that's a very important component because I will argue that one of the things that psychedelics do is they have the potential of changing your past. You can actually change your past. And what I mean by that is just if you change your relationship to an event that happened in the past, you have changed your past. Attitude, your approach, your reaction to something that happened in the past, if that takes place, right? If that, if that change in mindset takes place, you are actually able to change the relationship you have with that event in the past. And as such, you've changed the past. That's very important to understand in terms of therapy, what the promise of psychedelics can actually bring about. Again, I, I think that, that by bringing something that's in the subconscious to the forefront is, is a critical component of this, which is why it needs to be handled very delicately, because you are going into areas of the mind and the subconscious, which if it's not dealt with appropriately, can cause big issues. And that's why there's still a lot of work going on with areas like schizophrenia, with psychosis, bipolar disorder, um, okay. where you have to be very careful on which molecules you're on. So Saad, give us some examples where you have come across people who've been helped by psychedelics when other medicines haven't worked. One of the partners that we've worked with is an individual that uh, went to a great undergrad school, then went and worked at McKinsey, and then went mm -hmm. to do his master's MBA at Harvard. And, but this individual was dealing with cluster headaches that were so severe that he was on very serious medication like prednisone and, and other medications and had to be off work for weeks. This individual was told to take a microdose of psilocybin. He had to go to the right place and, and he went through the right process and he had a microdose and then he did a macrodose under the right sort of guidance and he hasn't had a cluster headache in over two years. I'm not suggesting to your audience that anybody that's dealing with migraines and cluster headaches, please go out there and have psilocybin, no. Because again, like I said, the dosage, your genetic profile, your makeup, um, you know, uh, ensuring that you are uh, at the right place where you've got the right guidance with somebody that's a psychedelic assisted therapist that can help in the equation. There's a lot to factor in. But um, we have already seen that uh, psychedelics have played a profound role with addiction, okay? Addiction to opioids, addiction to alcohol, addiction to tobacco. Mm -hmm. How can something that is has the potential to be addictive fight addiction? It doesn't make sense. So we, we know that these substances do not have any physiologically addictive properties. There are certain cases of certain molecules that if you take ketamine, for example, which is a horse tranquilizer, it's an anesthetic that's been legal for 50 years. If you take copious amounts of that on a very regular basis, you 
can be physiologically addicted to it. That means if you don't get it, your body has withdrawal symptoms, right? But uh, going back to your original question, addiction, we have seen it with treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorders. We have seen it as a cure for anxiety, for PTSD. Right now, the research that is very compelling is around mostly the um, mental health disorders. So we're seeing it mostly with uh, treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD. This is Anshu Bahanda. You can find our podcast, Wellness Curated, on Apple, Spotify, and a host of other channels. So tell me, if, if there is all this research happening, if, if it is such as amazing as mm. the research says it is, why is it still illegal in so many countries? The research is now coming to the forefront. We have about close to 100 different uh, compounds and molecules that are in clinical trials. They're in human testing. Right. Um, there are about 50 of them alone, I think, in the FDA between phase one and phase three. So for the FDA, for the Food and Drug Administration to approve this, it has to go through distinct trials. Number one, is it toxic? And then you go into testing for efficacy, and then you need to test it for scale. Can this be administered to, to many people and what's the, the outcome there? And that process is expensive and it can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Globally, in the various sort of FDA-related um, entities around the world, we have a lot of human testing that's currently going on. They're currently in phase trials. And so the U.S. tends to lead the pack with that. So right now, we have a substance called MDMA, which is known as the love drug, um, that is in phase three. It's the final set of trials. Is MDMA the- psychedelic? Technically, it is not. But it is put in the bucket of psychedelics because you can have, depends on the dosage again in the individual, but it, it, it can lead to an altered state of consciousness in a profound way. But unlike typical psychedelics um, like DMT or psilocybin, which are more dissociative, which means they take you away from any semblance of knowing who and what you are. Your ego is also called the ego death. MDMA is very much the opposite of that. It brings you very much into the moment. You are very much there, right? You are aware of everything that's going on and you're very sensitive to everything that's going on, but you're very much in the moment as, as opposed to dissociative. But it is clumped in with psychedelics because it is shown to have low toxicity levels and have an impact on mental health, in particular PTSD and anxiety. Um, um, and now they're doing studies with addiction as well um, that, that clearly show that they're, they're very highly efficacious. Once that gets through phase three trials, you've got another 24, 26 right behind it in phase two that are going to raise their hand and say, excuse me, you let MDMA go through. We have low toxicity, very high efficacy. There's no physiologically addictive properties to what we bring to the table. So we should also get through. And I think that's when you will start to see a real buy-in from the public. Right now, the only psychedelic that is out there is a version of ketamine. It's called lesketamine. came out by J&J. It's a nasal spray um, that is being used for depression. You also have a lot of ketamine clinics in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., where folks go for helping them with, with their ailments, in particular with depression. And there have been some great you know, results with regards to that. But there is, there's the whole slew of these other molecules that are in the pipeline that will come out soon. And that's what's going to change the public perception. Of this. But Saad, wasn't there in Netherlands, weren't there 
psilocybin clinics. Every, every country has different jurisdictions, right? So in okay. some countries, the, you know, these are already legal and they're legal to be used in a certain context. So yeah, you've got psilocybin clinics. You've even got ayahuasca retreats in, in the yes. Netherlands. The Netherlands has always been sort of at the forefront of some, some of these uh, uh, movements. Um, so yeah, it depends on the jurisdiction that you're in, but I'm specifically speaking of, of, of the US, the UK, where a lot of eyes of the globe are on what will the FDA do in terms of approving these molecules? How will they be introduced to the marketplace? How will they be commercialized? What's the best delivery mechanism for it? Like you, you may have a molecule approved, but how do we administer it? Do you mm -hmm. uh, take it intravenous, intramuscular? Do you vape it? Do you stick a, a tube up your nose? Like all that matters because that's gonna impact how you deliver this, right? And, and so those questions have not yet been answered. So we're, this is a long game, Anshu. We're, we're very much at the beginning stages of this. There's a long way to go. But the one thing that we know for sure is that the science is very compelling. They work. Then tell us about, you're saying the science is very compelling. Tell us about some of the trials that are being done and some of the research which has been done in this area. Yale, Harvard, I mean, like there's, there's, a, there's a lot of very well-known, established uh, academic institutions as well as a few pharma companies. So it's not that pharma hasn't played a role here. There's a lot of work going on. And what's exciting is that it's moved from first generation drug development and drug discovery to second generation drug development and drug discovery. What is happening is that psychedelics in the way that they interact with the receptors is allowing us to learn a great deal about the way that our minds and brains function. That's important because now we're, what we're able to do as a result is that the first generation was really about focusing on the simple molecules, taking a look at psilocybin, psilocin, taking a look at LSD and what they can do. Second generation allows us now to go beyond that and actually find a way to target receptors without touching any of the other receptors, which means that you can actually forego the receptor that brings about a hallucinogenic experience and, and skip that altogether. Ultimately, the third generation we're really looking forward to is the coming together of technology uh, which includes certain wearables that allow you to actually gauge what's happening during the course of having a psychedelic experience without having to go through an MRI machine, right? Wow. Oh, my God. That's mind-blowing. Amazing. So do you have any advice for the people listening in? So I would encourage everybody to follow the science. Try and understand it more and more. See if it may be uh, an area that you want to look at for a particular ailment that you are facing or somebody that's close to you or a loved one. But do your research. We're, we're, we're still a ways away from this being legal in certain jurisdictions like the US and the UK and Canada more broadly. Um, but that time is not that far away and it's coming out. And for me, I often say that the holy grail for me in this sort of an ecosystem environment is that, you know, we talk about the fact that we're going to go today for a reset to take place because we're going to go to visit a clinic or a retreat. And that's perfectly normal for us to do. It's just yeah. the same thing as going to a dental hygienist for your dental hygiene. You're going to a, a clinic or a retreat for a mental hygiene. And that's good. Are you aware of any studies 
which can help with treatment of autism. Yes, the studies with autism are starting to take place. There are a few organizations that are looking at the, the connection between um, certain psychedelics and autism, but it is very much at the early stages. Even autism, Anshu, is at such a wide spectrum, right? It's, mm. it's, a, it's a very big spectrum. Uh, but yes, it, it, there, there's certainly studies going on both in the UK and the US um, that, that are compelling. Aren't the altered states temporary? And so the, how do they permanently help with a cure? When you're in an altered state of consciousness and you're faced with the issues or you're, you're forced to face the issues, you have a, a, a different perspective about it and uh, you're able to sit with it for a while. Even though you come out of that altered state of consciousness, it has had a profound impact on your relationship with that particular trauma or issue. The idea is not to be in an altered state of consciousness all the time. Some of us would say, wow, that'd be amazing. But that's not the idea. The idea is to take you into a realm of perception that allows you to face your issues in a certain way. And then once that is over and you come out of it, then you have to make sense and integrate what it is that you just experienced. And that integration is not easy because a lot of things happen in terms of symbols. There are things that you see and you perceive that your imagination does not have have the vocabulary to be able to explain properly. But you do have an essence of what you just went through. And that essence is a sense that is just as effective as sight or sound uh, or taste or smell. And you know through that essence that you were able to look at a problem in a certain way that made you feel a lot more comfortable about it. Okay. In Canada, for example, Anshu, it's already been you know, approved for a distinct number of individuals that are suffering from terminal illness and they know that they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And the government of Canada allowed them to have an experience with psilocybin to bring their anxiety levels down. And it had a profound impact to them. You know, they, you know, whereas before they just didn't know how to deal with the anxiety. Now they're a lot more comfortable with it. They're much more at peace with it. They're more grounded with it because they were able to see or sense something that was subjective to them, but it was profound enough for them to, you know, get the anxieties to go away. How does one participate in a trial with an experienced psychedelic practitioner? You can take a look at the various trials going on and apply you know, to see if you would be accepted as, as somebody for that trial. It's, it's not like there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those, those roles around, right? So there's one thing to participate in a trial. Other than that, there are legally established ketamine clinics that one can go to, but that only offers one thing, ketamine. And just for everybody's info, ketamine is synthetic. It is known as, the, as an anesthetic, right? And it was used as a horse tranquilizer before that. It can be a very strong dissociative, which means that you have to be prepared that it will cut you off from any semblance of who and what you are, which is from your ego, which for some people is a very, very scary thought. Just be careful with what you choose, but right now, Ketamine is the only thing that's offered on the menu in most places. You can go to jurisdictions like Peru, like Brazil, like Belize, where you can legally go and have an experience, be that with ayahuasca or with psilocybin um, or with a few other modalities. Um, But again, 
do your homework on this. Just because it's legal somewhere doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. Understand that there is a whole process to to prepare in advance, which includes your diet, your mental well-being, mm-hmm. ensuring that it's the right setting for you, that you're in in the right frame of mind, which is the set, and then an ability to integrate afterwards with with the right folks. There are just too many bad experiences that people have had, and what I mean about bad experiences, Anshu, I'm talking about people that have gone to have an experience. In the right jurisdiction, it's all legal. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the shaman decides to kick them in the stomach. This is not a walk in the park. Psychedelics are not like, oh, I've got to go and have, it's going to have a great experience. No. For most, most people, it's a very taxing experience. Some of them have a lot of purge that takes place, right? So th- this is not something that typically calls you back and again and again to say, hey, come back and you know, we'll have another party. No, this is not a party. Is a therapist keen to integrate this into that you know because it's quite unorthodox as of now there's a paradigm shift um there is what they call a psychedelic renaissance movement that's currently taking place and this is going to grow what we are in short supply of are psychedelic assisted therapists and it's because there is a short supply of sessions or protocols or curriculums out there that would allow you to be trained in the right way and then the question comes in that fine you're trained as a therapist but how can you administer any of these to patients if you yourself haven't had an experience with it? But it's illegal, right? So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, but rest assured that there are protocols underway. You uh, have a lot of courses and curriculums that are coming up through different establishments and, and different academic institutions that are offering these courses and curriculums and training programs. Okay, how do they help with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder as it can trigger the hallucination attack. It's very tricky. However, if we make a lot of traction with taking the hallucinogenic component out of the equation, which is that we don't intersect with that one particular receptor or those receptors, then this becomes something doable, right? But that's the one area that we're doing a lot more research on to to figure out, and it'll be some time. But I think taking the hallucinogenic component out of the equation will be critical for that particular ailment. What are the best startups, brands, names in the space that we should watch out for? And what are the ones that you've invested in and why? For us, this is a passion project. It's because um, myself and you know, my, my partners, we've been following this for uh, you know, well over 20 years, studying the ethnobotany, the pharmacology, the science, the cultural aspects, the history. We're all in because we, we believe in the space uh, in, in a big way. A, a year and a half ago, when we launched our fund, there were maybe 18 to 20 companies in the private space that were looking for funding that we'd even look at. Now they're well over 600. The landscape has changed. I would say that the crown jewels in this industry are still the private companies. Okay, there are few public companies in the space that that are are ones to watch out for, but the vast proponents of them to really pay attention to are in the private space. And so um, if you have access to some of those private deals, you know what's going on in the private space, look at it. I would be very, very careful though, because this is a bit of the Wild West. You have a lot of companies that are standing up that don't have the right backgrounds, that don't have the right intellectual property secured, um, that do not not have the right teams or understand the the clinical trial processes to have uh, a real input on how they'll develop. So I think that it's caveat emptor, buyer beware. But there are certainly several 
incredibly compelling companies that are doing some profound things with drug development and drug discovery that have the right teams from the right backgrounds that will be game changing wonderful that was such an incredible chat thank you so much sad thanks for joining us hope you enjoyed the wellness curated podcast please subscribe and tell your friends and family about it and here's to you leading your best life